morning. The scripture reading this morning will be taken from Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. That's Genesis 9, verse 6. And it reads, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God, God has made man. Good morning. I read a story the other day that I found interesting and I'd like to share. A man was on trial for murder. And the evidence was all pointing to the idea or to the fact that he was guilty. And so, even though this was true, even though all the evidence seemed to point that he was guilty, there was no body in the trial. No body had been found. And so, in the closing remarks, the defense attorney, understanding and knowing that his, his client was probably going to go to jail he decided to resort to a last-minute ditch effort, a last trick. And so what he did was he, he turned to the jury and he said, Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I have a surprise for you all. In one minute, and he looked at his watch, he said, In one minute, the person presumed dead in this case will walk through that door. And he looked at the door. And so did the jury. They all looked on intently and they waited. And a minute passed. But nothing happened. And it was after this that the defense attorney said, well, I, I made up that statement. But you looked, didn't you? You looked at the door. Therefore, I submit to you that there, was, there is reasonable doubt in this case that anybody died at all, much less that my client committed the murder. Therefore, you must come out with a verdict of not guilty. So he was feeling pretty good about himself as the jury went away. They were clearly stunned, clearly confused, but they went away and he thought, there's nothing they can do in response to that argument. And so he was feeling confident when they came back in only a few minutes later. And yet to his shock, they pronounced the verdict of guilty. How could you do that, he said. He inquired of them, Why could you say he's guilty when I showed you that there was reasonable doubt? You all looked at the door. And the jury foreman responded by saying, Yes, we did look at the door. But your client didn't. (laughs) Okay. So there's a little anecdote because I I wanted to bring a little bit of levity before we get into one of the hardest subjects that we could possibly discuss. We're returning to the Ten Commandments. We're looking now at the Sixth Commandment. Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, it says, You shall not murder. And the Hebrew, really, it's two words. No murder. Pretty simple, right? Easy enough to understand. Therefore, please come as together we stand and sing. But what is there more to say, right? What could I possibly say? Any, how could I add to the discussion on murder without, other than just saying, don't do it, right? What could possibly be added to, added to this discussion? How could I possibly fill time? You know, you know me, I'm pretty good at filling time. But how could I possibly fill a whole sermon on this subject of murder? Because number one, it's easy to understand. And number two, it doesn't apply to us. Us normal folk. We don't murder Right? We're good people. It doesn't apply to me. It doesn't apply to you. I think a lot of preachers think this way. Which is why, if there's ever a series on the Ten Commandments, most preachers will only stay in Exodus for about two minutes 
And then they'll jump to Matthew chapter 5. Because they view this commandment almost as if it's a redundant commandment. And so they read the commandment, you shall not murder, and then they move on to Matthew chapter 5, to the Sermon on the Mount. And this passage was just read to us in in chapter 5, starting in verse 21. It says, You have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder. Whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever says to his brother, You do good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, You fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Now, all of this is a good, a good passage to study. Perhaps it's happened to you where you worship the Lord. Perhaps in this very assembly where you were worshiping the Lord and someone had a grudge against you or you had a fight with somebody and you had not let it, you had let it fester. You didn't really want to confront the problem so you let it grow into a grudge. Maybe you had a grudge against them and here you are worshiping God with your lips while hating your brother. And I think that's a very important thing for us to hear. Right? And it's an important sermon to be had from Matthew chapter 5. But that's not really what the sixth commandment is about. I think a lot of times we get into this, I think, almost faulty mindset that Jesus, in quoting the sixth commandment and in quoting the seventh commandment, he is in some way correcting the original intent of the law or expanding upon the original intent of the law. The original intent of you shall not murder is simple. Don't murder. And God, what He's doing in those commandments, and commandments really 6, 7, and 8, when He talks about you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, what He's doing is He's setting the groundwork. He's, he's really setting the basics for a just society, and He's setting the context in which the people of God were going to be called into further holy living. Because the Torah goes much further than just don't murder. God is not simply happy with His people as long as they don't kill others. Right? And we look at the, the Torah, it teaches that you should love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. And then later in that chapter, God says you need to extend that same love to even the sojourner, even the traveler amongst you. And so God says you need to love everyone. You need to love people whether they're from around here or not, whether they look like you or not. You need to love everyone as, if you, would lo- as you would love yourself. And so the Torah, from the beginning, always taught more than just don't murder. God was always telling us to actively do the opposite of murder. But, when we get to commandment commandment 6 and the Ten Commandments, He is simply stating a prohibition. A very simple prohibition that we can't kill other people. And God references this, again, not to correct the original intent of the Ten Commandments, but to correct the Pharisees and how they were thinking. Because they were thinking to themselves, hey, I don't kill anyone, I'm a good guy. Hey, I don't commit adultery, I'm a good guy. And Jesus says, you're not fulfilling the law. Even if you're not killing people, you're still hating your brother. He says, you're not fulfilling the law. Even if you're not committing adultery, you're still lusting after women and you've committed adultery in your heart. 
Jesus is correcting the faulty assumption that all we have to do is follow these prohibitions. But we need to understand. And by the way, all of that is a great sermon to be heard. All of that's a great sermon. But it's a sermon from the, from the Sermon on the Mount. Not a sermon from the Ten Commandments. And I think it's important for us uh, when we look at this particular commandment, we don't run away, uh, and maybe that's a harsh way of saying it, but I mean, a lot, I've talked to Richard about this a few days ago. A lot of preachers would rather talk about what Jesus talks about, again, because we feel like murder doesn't apply to us, or because it, maybe it's a dark subject matter we don't want to talk about. But here's the thing. Murder takes place all the time. It still happens in our forward-thinking modern society, doesn't it? And not just the conventional murders, if, you can, if there is such a thing. right? Not just crimes of passion, where somebody kills someone whom they love and that love is twisted into, into hatred. Or may, not just you know, someone killing you know, people on the streets like we often think of. I'm talking about senseless murders. Murders that seemingly have no motive at all feel like I can't even open up a website anymore, a news site anymore, without reading some new horror story taking place. Now, if what I read is correct, the numbers really surged in the 90s and they've been pretty steady ever since. The number of mass shootings, of old and young alike, taking up arms against innocent bystanders, people who, have, who they don't even know, but they will kill strangers out of the blue. I know we've all seen and, and, and been shocked and horrified by some of the stories, some of the things that are taking place. It's not just that, though. It's not just people driving cars into crowds. It's not just the motive, you know, the seemingly motiveless murders that are taking place in our society, not by a long shot. A few months ago, when we began our journey in the book of Exodus, I preached on abortion. And I went into extreme detail, I think because it's important. And I encourage you, if you weren't here for that, look that sermon up online. Because I don't have time to really dive into it anymore, but I, this is such an important topic for us to, as the church, to be willing to discuss. Because we, as we saw in that lesson, abortion is indeed murder. Understanding that, therefore, we come to a sobering and disturbing reality. That there is an assembly line of murder taking place under our noses in our own backyard. We live in a blood-soaked society. So how dare we suggest in our minds that such a commandment, such a simple commandment, has nothing to do with us? From the beginning, mankind has been filled with murderers. Cain and Abel, the very first family, was marred by murder. And ever since then, the cycle has continued. And so when God gave the Sixth Commandment, He wasn't just giving a commandment that everybody knows instinctively. He was giving a commandment that we needed to hear as humans, and we need to study it today. You shall not murder. So let's talk about this particular, very simple, yet very important commandment. Now, the first thing I want us to do is I want us to look at this verse the way the Hebrews would have looked at it. 
And I think the best way to understand this is by first understanding what this verse isn't talking about. The Hebrew word, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, but it's ratzak or something like that. Uh, But this is a very specific word. It's not just a general word for kill. In fact, the Hebrew language had many words for killing, for different types of killings. And some were more general, some were more specific. This is one of those specific words. And it's talking about the intentional, immoral killing of a human being. Now, all of those words are important. Understanding that, what is this verse not saying? Well, this verse is not talking about manslaughter, which is the accidental killing of someone by negligent behavior. Now, there is some debate on this one, on this particular point. Uh, some people have suggested that ratzak could mean or could include manslaughter, but it really doesn't matter so much because manslaughter is dealt with under the law of Moses, and there are certain provisions uh, given in Deuteronomy chapter 19 and Numbers chapter 35. But in everything I've read, uh, I've come to the conclusion that this word, it's, it's talking again about the intentional murder. It's talking about, uh, in other words, intent has a great deal to do with what this command is talking about. So it doesn't include manslaughter. That's, that's the simplest of these. But this verse is also not talking about capital punishment or the death penalty. In the Old Covenant, under the law of Moses, the very same law that these commandments are written, the death penalty is prescribed by God. In fact, if you read the Old Testament, over two dozen occasions, there are over two dozen occasions in which capital punishment is ordained and prescribed by God. And when you and so you can't you can't come out of the 10 commandments, you can't read thou shalt not murder and think, "Oh, this is talking about capital punishment," because that's just simply not what it was talking about. That's simply not how it would have been viewed by the Jews at the time. And I think it's an important principle for us to understand. We cannot draw a meaning out of a text what it didn't originally mean. Okay, that's going to come back later. This is a principle we're going to try to continue to follow. But this principle, this idea of capital punishment, it actually does move forward into the New Testament. In Romans chapter 13, in verses 1 through 4, Paul says this, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God an avenger who, pra- who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Paul says, God, or Paul says that God has ultimate authority and he has granted some of that authority to governments. And he says, he calls governments avengers who enact the wrath of God. And he says they don't bear the sword for nothing. Now Paul goes on from there in what I call my least favorite verse in the Bible. Now, have you, ever, have you ever been asked what your... We always talk about what our favorite verses in the Bible is. Have you ever been asked what's your least favorite verse? Well, mine's just a few verses later when Paul says you have to pay taxes. Okay? But what Paul, what Paul is saying here is that 
yes, governments have the authority to demand taxes, yes, but also to inflict capital punishment, to enact the death penalty. Now, that doesn't mean we have to be pro-death penalty. But you can't, if you're going to be an honest student of God's word, you can't come away from it thinking that the death penalty is a breaking of, of this commandment. Because it's very simply, very simply, the death penalty is prescribed in the Bible. And what we do when we, when we insert this into this discussion, I think we're, as what we're doing is we're muddying the waters a little bit. And that's especially true of the next topic here. Because this verse is not only not talking about capital punishment, it's also not talking about killing in a just war. Now, this is a big one, okay? It's a very big one. And I think it requires a very nuanced discussion, especially in our modern American context. In modern American Christianity, this is a gray area discussion. But when you go back to the Old Testament, it's very easy to see that there was, there's such a thing as a just war and an unjust war. There were some wars that were, that were commanded by God, where God is actually enacting His justice upon certain nations. Even Israel could be included in that list sometimes. And so there, are, there is such a thing as a just war. In fact, there are certain people we praise in the Bible who were warriors. And they were very skillful. And they were praised for their skill in battle, for their skill in killing opponents of God. Think of David. David has slain his tens of thousands. I think that's an exaggeration. But it's probably not the biggest exaggeration, okay? Because David killed a lot of people. And so there there are times we go back to to the Old Testament and we see the kingdom of God was a physical nation that had physical borders that needed protection. That makes us uncomfortable, perhaps. We also need to understand that in our modern context, things are a little bit different, aren't they? The kingdom of God is spiritual. The kingdom of God does not have physical borders that need protection. And the war we fight is spiritual rather than physical. But all that said... I think the question still needs to arise in our own modern context. Is there such a thing as just war and unjust war? And and really understand, I think the Bible makes that pretty clear that yes, there is. And therefore the next question is, well, which wars are just and which aren't? Now I'll admit, smarter men than I have not come up with a good definitive answer on this. So far be it for me to to present some answer as if I know... This is a hard discussion in our modern American context. And every time a new war starts, we need to be asking certain questions. Now, scholars have come up with seven questions that I ran across that I think give us, that at least get us started in the right direction. Okay? So if you're asking the question, is this war just, is it unjust, here are seven questions that I think will illuminate the subject. Number one, is it a legitimate authority waging the war? So this goes back to the idea of Romans 13 that governing authorities have been granted authority by God and that he gives them the sword to bear, right? And the idea here is that is this war being started by an authority like that or is it being started by maybe a band of rebels or something like that? Number two, is the war defensive and not offensive? So now we're talking about two sides, right? I don't think there's ever a war in which both sides are just. 
But we are talking about is is our particular side, are we who maybe be maybe in the war, are we acting defensively or offensively? Are we defending our people? Are we defending our our territory? Or are we trying to expand? Number three, is it a noble cause? Now this one is a hard and dangerous one to answer. Let me just say it this way. Never let that be your only question. But it should be considered. Is this a noble cause? Number four, is, it, is proportional force being used? Is proportional force being used? Number five, does it, or excuse me, are soldiers and not civilians being targeted? That's a big one to consider. Number six, does it ultimately save more lives than it takes? And finally, number seven, is it a last resort? Because even though we look back at the Old Testament and we see warriors being praised, I think it's clear from Scripture that war should always be a last resort. That it should never be sought out. And we wish we could live in a world without war. And that's what the new heavens and the new earth are for. But for right now, we live in a fallen world. And we can't be so naive as to think really one side or the other. Let me just defend everybody for a second. Because this can get very political, sadly, even though this is obviously a very deep moral question. But uh, there are two sides to this, and I get both sides. But we can't be naive on either side. We can't get into this mindset that all war and every side on every war is unjust. But we also can't get into the idea that every time America is in in the midst of a war, we're the just side because we're the good guys and everybody else is the bad guys. Both are naive. Sadly, we live in a complex, fallen world in which we have to ask hard questions. And I would, I would say that any Christian in the military has to really study this and really dive deep into what they believe on a lot of these questions. And this is why we need to be praying for our leaders so that they don't get our soldiers involved in unjust situations. All of that being said, all, you know, understanding that this is a very nuanced discussion, we need to understand that that's not what this verse is talking about. This verse is not talking... In fact, the word ratzak is never used in the Bible to refer to war. It's never used as a, on a, about a soldier. Because there is such a thing as a just and unjust war. And this verse is not talking about killing in war. Finally, this verse is also not talking about self-defense. How could you say that, John? Well, we go to Exodus chapter 22. Exodus chapter 22, only two chapters after these Ten Commandments are read, we look at verse 2. It says, If the thief is caught while breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there will be no blood guiltiness on his account. But if the sun is risen on him, there will be blood guiltiness on his account. He shall surely make restitution. If he owns nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. Okay, so... There's a lot of debate as to what a, what a lot of the nuanced details in, in those verses mean. I'm not going to get into all of that. But scholars agree that the Torah, the Old Covenant, very clearly, very explicitly, allows for killing in self-defense. So, again, we're going back to the idea that this is... That this, how, how did the Jews view this verse at the time? Well... You shall not murder. It didn't mean killing in war. It didn't mean capital punishment. It it wasn't talking about manslaughter. And it wasn't talking about killing in self-defense. 
it was talking again about this intentional, immoral killing of a human being. Now, when we talk about all of these issues, when we talk about all of these subjects, we need to make sure we're not pulling this verse out of context and using it in an incorrect manner. At the same time, I want to make something extremely clear. We should never treat the taking of a life flippantly. It should never be easy. It should never be an easy decision. Because as we'll talk about in just a few moments, the reason behind the commandment not to murder is because there's true amazing value to every human life. Even those who are evil, even those who are attacking you, even those who start wars, there's tremendous value to every human life. And that should never be taken for granted. Because that's what Satan wants. He wants us to take the value of life for granted. In fact, I think this is what this is really the cause of all murder. But again, we'll get into that in a moment. So, this commandment is talking about the intentional, immoral killing of a human being. And we think that such a commandment, now that we've talked about what it's not, now that we've realized what it's not talking about, now we realize how specific this commandment is, we think to ourselves, oh, this isn't really talking about me. Because you'd have to be especially evil. You have to be particularly insane to take someone's life. And yet, as I already pointed out, murder takes place all the time. It's a real problem in our culture, and it's a problem in every culture. Because from the beginning, Satan has manipulated us in this way. In John 8:44, Jesus called Satan a murderer from the beginning. He's been able to distort and to manipulate and to enrage people to the point where they commit such atrocious acts. And here's a scary thought that we all need to confront. There's a potential murderer in all of us. We all have the capability of committing tremendous evil. Now, I want to make sure this point is clearly understood because I view this to be an extremely important point. And admittedly, there are going to be a lot of people who don't agree with me. There are going to be people who think it's not that big of a deal to understand this. Or there are going to be people who, don't, who just don't believe this. They don't believe that everyone is capable. But we need to understand. We all need to confront the potential murderer within us. We all need to confront the fact that you, that I, am capable of great evil. I was reading a book, I've been reading a book in my spare time called The Gulag Archipelago by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. It's taken me a really long time to read because it's a hard book to read. And mainly it's because it, it documents some of the atrocious acts that were uh, being done under co- the communist regime, mainly under Stalin in the Soviet Union. And, he's, and he goes into tremendous detail, and it's not fun. In fact, I know that's, that might be strange for you to hear. What, did, what, do you, what do you do in your spare time, John? Oh, I read about the gulag. Yeah, it's not fun, but I think it's so important for us to learn from our history. 
and confront the idea that that could have been us. Could have been us in the prisons. We could have also been the prison guard. And this is one of the main points that Solzhenitsyn makes in the book. I was struck by one of his quotes. He had, and, and there's a moment in the book when he's just gone into full detail as to the horrendous things that, that these prison guards were doing to the people. And he points out, these were people just like everybody else. How could they get to that point where they're willing to commit such great evil? And he says this in answering that question. He says, if only if it were all so simple... If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. Listen to this. He says, But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? He says, The line dividing good and evil cuts through every human heart. In other words, we're all capable of tremendous evil. And that's why, again, it's so important to me that we confront the potential murderer within ourselves. That may seem like a drastic statement, I understand. But I, 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 I want to really emphasize the importance of this. Because there have been people over the centuries who have committed great evil, but they had the thumbs up from either their, their government or their society and culture or their religious group. They had the thumbs up from the people around them, and therefore when they committed these acts of evil, they thought not only were they not doing something wrong, they thought of themselves as actively doing good. And we are all capable of being bamboozled in this way if we don't confront the fact that yes, I, yes, you, are capable of getting to that point psychologically, of getting to that point spiritually where you could take another person's life. I think so often we think, oh, how could somebody shoot up a crowded room? What about the mother or the father of the person who committed that crime? Did they ever consider that their child could be capable of that? I know this is dark. <laughs> I, uh, in preparation for this lesson, as you can imagine, I went to a dark place. But I think it's, again, it's so important that we understand this commandment not to murder, it's not something we just know instinctively. It's something we had to be taught by God through revelation. Because if you look back at other codes that came out around the same time as the Torah, and you see that they said something along the lines of, yeah, don't kill your people in, in this tribe, but if you find somebody outside of this tribe, yeah, you can kill them. Because they have less meaning or less value. And we could be tricked into the same idea if we are not careful. The Torah doesn't teach that. The Torah teaches that everyone has the same value. In fact, the verse was read before the lesson, Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. Does anyone who sheds the, the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God created man in his image. I already mentioned what my least favorite verse in the Bible is. Let's talk about one of my favorite verses. In fact, I don't know if you've ever heard it expressed this way, but I, I, I liked this way of saying it. Think about Rushmore. 
some point, our, our country decided these are the four guys we like the most. Okay? These are the four presidents we like the most. Therefore, we're going to put them up on this you know, amazing sculpture that we can go visit. That's the Mount Rushmore. These are the four presidents that we'd like to talk about. So let me ask you, what's your four... It doesn't have to be four, but what are your Mount Rushmore verses of the Bible? What are the verses of the Bible that you love the most, that you feel like, let's say, sum up other parts of the Bible so eloquently? What are those verses? What are those Mount Rushmore verses? Well, I'll tell you, on my Mount Rushmore of Bible verses... Genesis 1.1 would definitely be up there. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It all starts there, doesn't it? That's what we first have to understand when we grow up. We have to understand that God is the one who created everything. And that in the beginning, He was and He always will be. And, and I think that's on the Mount Rushmore for sure. Genesis 1.1. You know what else would be up there? John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That sounds like a Mount Rushmore verse, doesn't it? You know what other verse I'd put up there? Genesis 1.27 God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This verse is the foundation for so many parts of our life. It's the foundation for our main meaning and purpose in life. It's the foundation for what our meaning and purpose will be after the second coming of Christ, of who we will be. It's also the foundation for why we need to treat others with love, dignity, and respect. And it's the foundation for why we don't murder, as Genesis 9-6 points out. It all goes back to this. And this is why I wanted to make sure it was imminently clear in our discussion on war, in our discussion of capital punishment and self-defense, that human life has extreme value because every human being was made in the image of God. And that's why we don't take human lives flippantly, and that's why we certainly don't murder. Because everyone in this room was made in the image of God. And that is the foundation for their purpose, is the foundation for why we ought to, ought to treat them the way we would, ourselves would want to be treated. Now, when you look at our culture, I think Satan has done one of two things to really mess this up in our culture. Number one, he's tricked people into thinking that a certain victim doesn't constitute human life. And that's primarily what's done in abortion. Right? We have all of these people who are committing murder but they don't think of it that way they don't think that they are committing murder because Satan has put fog in front of many people's eyes and you're thinking well this isn't human life and therefore it doesn't have value but he's also done another thing in our culture and this is something that I've been scared of for several years now because I've noticed if you go on social media if you go on uh, websites and you kind of see you, you, you can almost put your finger on the pulse of young people in America there is a, there's a disturbing trend and that is nihilism there's so many young people and old too I'm sure but there are so many people growing up in our society 
with a growing sense of nihilism. If you don't know what nihilism it is, is it's the idea of, of really disregarding all morality because life is pointless. Life is meaningless. And there are people online, you know, just a rudimentary search online, and you'll see countless people who are embracing this philosophy, who are embracing the quote-unquote meaninglessness of life. And I think this is one of the main things that leads to, to people shooting up a crowded theater. Because if there's no point, I might as well be dead. If I might as well be dead, so should you. And really, this viewpoint, this nihilistic viewpoint, it comes part and parcel with the atheistic evolutionary viewpoint. Because if the world operates by the strict principle of survival, survival of the fittest, then there is no intrinsic value to human life. And if there's no intrinsic value to human life, then what does it matter if the strong kill the weak? This idea that every one of us was made in the image of God, it's under attack in our culture by this growing secularism in our culture. But it doesn't just come from the secular side either. It's not, this danger isn't just in the secular side, as we've seen throughout history. There's also tribalism that could really lead to this, and this has taken place in religion itself. Right? We think of the Inquisition, think of even the Crusades, in which Christianity, the name of Christ, was used profanely to kill other people. And it, it, there's this mindset that we can be subject to, that we can be prey to, even those of us in the religious society, where we can think that other people have less value than us because they don't believe or because they look a different way and so on and so forth. And so this danger comes from all sides. And, and Satan, what he's attempting to do is he's attempting to manipulate us into degrading the value of life. We can't let that happen. And so my call for us this morning is very simple. We as the church, we need to be a beacon. We need to be a beacon to the world, to the people around us. Everyone you meet needs to know that you value life. And nothing, far be it from us that anything we say could come across as if we don't value certain lives over others. Far be it from us that anyone would hear from the church something that degrades the value of human life. Now what does this mean? What does this look like? It means that when we talk to a woman, maybe a young girl, still in school, who thinks that that baby is going to be a real hindrance on their life, who thinks that they, they can't even imagine getting through much less their, the rest of their lives, but they can't even imagine getting through the rest of the school year if they go into full term and they have this child. We need to be telling, we need to be proclaiming that that child and every child is a gift from God. That life itself is a gift from God. And even if it seems hard now, there'll be no regrets later. Now, most of you know I was born in a, by a single mother. Abortion never came across her mind, but there were some who suggested to her that she should do it because, oh, you're, you're single, you know, you don't have the proper, you know, let's say, means 
to take care of your children. Now, as I said, it never crossed through my mom's mind. But, she'll tell you, there's no greater blessing in her life other than the blood of Christ. There's no greater blessing in her life than her children. And that's the message we need to be proclaiming to the world. That, and I, I of course, I just had a kid. I, I can say this from experience. There is no greater blessing other than the blood of Christ than the blessing of a child. This is the message we need to be proclaiming. That life has extreme value. And that means when we're talking to someone who's thinking of of harming themselves, when we talk to someone who's thinking of suicide, even though it seems hard now, we need to be proclaiming the value of life, even in the midst of suffering, life still has value. This also means we need to be protecting our children. Because we're growing up, or they're, they are growing up in a society that doesn't value life. Simply put. And a lot of the media that they are taking in through, I, I encourage you to always be aware of the media your family is taking in. Because a lot of it is degrading to human life. I heard somewhere that, and I don't think this is the only problem, but I think when you couple this with, with the growing nihilism, the pointlessness of life in our culture, I think it becomes a real problem. And that is that uh, I think the average kid I read, when, once they graduate, they've witnessed on, through media, whether it be TV, movies, or video games, they've witnessed about 80,000 murders. Now, granted, there's murder in the Bible when we, read, when we read the Bible, right? But when you couple that, this continual desensitization to violence, when you couple that with nihilism, it's a real issue. So we need to be protecting our children. We need to be, again, a beacon to the rest of the world. Far be it that anyone would hear anything from the church other than that which affirms and underlines the amazing value that every single person has in the eyes of God. So that's my call, really, because that's what it all goes back to. Mankind was made in the image of God. Therefore, we shall not murder. The lesson is yours. If there's anyone here this morning who has any need whatsoever, you can come forward. We can pray with you and talk with you as a congregation. We can also, if you are ready, baptize you into Christ. There's no better day than now. There's no better time than now to, to accept Christ into your life. Whatever your need is, please come as together we stand and sing.